Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, if you would. If you didn't bring a Bible, again, our church app. Open the church app up right there on the home tab. The bottom is a Bible app that will connect you to the Bible app. Follow along with us. Acts 15. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. And today we're beginning a two-part look at the convening of the council, which we're going to be covering in Acts chapter 15, verses 6 through 22. A two-part look, if I didn't already say that. Uh, In part one, we're going to be studying verses 6 through 11 today. But first, just for context, let's actually begin by reading Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Beginning in verse 1, Luke records for us here, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the, some of the sect, verse 5, of the Pharisees, who believed, rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. In our study last week, we see these group, this group of men who Paul in Galatians chapter 2 called false brethren. They were a group of individuals who came north from the church in Jerusalem acting as though they had been sent out by the church, acting as though they had some form of authority from the leaders in the church, and yet they didn't. They pretended to have some sort of authority that wasn't actually theirs, and as they came north to the area of Syrian Antioch, they somehow gathered the believers together there and began to teach them. And what we find is that they were distorting the simplicity of the gospel. They were adding something in that God was not adding in for these Gentile believers teaching them that unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved. In other words, they were telling them that faith in Jesus was not enough to save them, that it needed to be Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas, as we see here, had a big dispute with these men. They wouldn't budge for even a second because the truth of the gospel was at stake. The the salvation of these Gentile believers was at stake in what these Judaizers, as they're known, were teaching the believers there. What they were teaching was troubling and unsettling the souls of the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go down with some others in the church there. They go down to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders to bring up this matter to them. As they traveled, they described what God was doing among the Gentiles, how Gentiles were 
being saved, reporting what God had done among them. They get to the church in Jerusalem. They report all of this. But the Pharisees opposed them, as we saw in verse 5. And as I said last week, this was probably the most dangerous moment in the early church so far. But God was going to use these things to expose wrong thinking, expose the false gospel that these legalistic Jewish believers had been clinging to so that the true gospel would come forth in this council in a unified way and be solidified and proclaimed. And so with that context in mind, as we pick up in verse 6, we read here, it says in verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up. And we're going to stop right there. Again, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed they opposed the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching, the simple but powerful message that salvation was available to Jew and Gentile by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and what Jesus had done through his death and burial and resurrection. These Pharisees opposing them by saying that it was necessary the Gentiles be circumcised and be commanded to keep the law of Moses. And so as a result, we see that the apostles and elders, basically all of the church leaders in Jerusalem, they came together to consider this matter. And as we see in the first part of verse 7, this led to there being a great dispute or great disagreement among them. You know, there's something encouraging about the, about the fact that even here, with all of these godly apostles and elders and leaders coming together about this situation, that even though they didn't all initially agree about this, that in their disagreement, they heard each other out. We see two different times in this convening of the council that, that the group that had assembled became silent. They heard each other out in their disagreement. They were able to lovingly call each other out. And ultimately, as we'll see later in this account, which we'll cover next week, they had humble hearts to see where they had erred. To, to get on board with what God was doing and speaking. And then they were able to unify around what was right and true and was most important to the heart of God. I almost wanted to say that it was encouraging that they disagreed, but that's not really the encouraging. Because, you know, thousands of years later now, we're still finding these sorts of dynamics. We still find that there are things that believers will disagree with one another about. But just the disagreement enough, uh, alone was not really the encouraging part. It's how they handled it. See, these apostles and elders were disagreeing about essential issues of the faith, things that could have led to legitimate and necessary division because the gospel message, again, was at stake. People's salvation was at stake. But they worked through these things that they disagreed about and they sought to lovingly and respectfully convince those who were acting and believing wrongly. 
You know, many people just don't know how to lovingly and respectfully disagree with others anymore. And sadly, it's just as true when it comes to Christians with other Christians. And many times it's not essential issues of the faith that cause believers to separate themselves from other believers, cutting other believers out of their lives with with no respect, no love, no grace. Disputes abound today that, that have led to divisions that have a ripple effect that goes far beyond just those who are having the dispute. And it's so sad. You ever notice that division never just affects those that are dividing? It affects all those around those people. It affects whole churches. It affects whole movements. It can affect a whole family. Some Christians have come to adopt a mindset today when, where if there's not uniformity, everybody doing and thinking the same things as them, that, then there's this mindset where they no longer have to endeavor, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's like, well, if there's no uniformity, all bets are off. I'm going to treat you like an enemy. Understand that while there needs to be unity and agreement around essential issues of the faith, when it comes to non-essentials, there's room for diversity in our unity. Meaning that our unity around non-essential issues doesn't require uniformity in order for that unity to be upheld and prioritized by each and every one of us. You know, when I consider even, and I look through, and I scroll through Instagram, because I don't go on Facebook, it's not my jam, but when I scroll through Instagram even, and some of the people that I follow, they'll, they'll post something, and it's almost like people nowadays just want to dispute. They just want to say something, they just want to have something. It's just like trolls abound in our culture, right? They're just trolling people's... What can I say? I mean, I know this really, like, this is fine on the surface, but I want to make something there that's not really there. I want to I interject something in the comment section that's just totally unnecessary, that's going to cause some sort of dispute, because some people just thrive off of disputing today. And it's completely ridiculous. It, the... You know, when we consider Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, probably the longest prayer that's recorded of Jesus in all of the gospel accounts, and we see the kinds of things that Jesus prayed for, you know what tended to be towards the top of the list of what Jesus emphasized in John 17 as he prayed? It was that we as believers would be one as he and the Father are one. Unity. Because he said, this will be how the world is known, knows that the Father sent me. So our witness is at stake in our unity. And these are reminders that all of us are, are needing in this day. Some of us are, are needing to be reminded 
so that maybe not for us, but maybe to remind somebody else to cut out the disputing and, and really seek to endeavor to make every effort possible to keep the unity of the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians, in the bond of peace. In the bond of peace. And I believe we see that exemplified for us here, even in the convening of this council. Even though there was a dispute, there was, a, there was an endeavoring here, we're going to see, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in how they went about these things. But back to our text, it was this dispute taking place in our account that led Peter to, to get up and start to address the rest of the church leaders in verse 7. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on Peter's appeal in verses 7 through 11. But let's begin by reading verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, again, it says, if I can find the verse. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter begins his appeal, notice, respectfully by addressing them as men and brethren, which was also a reminder to them that they were a part of the same family because Jesus had made them family together through his free gift of salvation. Men, we are brethren. We're brethren. Let's 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 put that right in the forefront as we begin to talk about things. We're family. So family should handle things differently cuz family loves each other. Family gives each other the benefit of the doubt. Right? I mean, that's how it should be. He goes on to remind them of something they knew well, which was that years earlier, God chose that Peter would be the one to take the gospel to the Gentiles so that by his mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel so that they could believe and be saved. This is the situation we find in Acts chapter 10 and then that Peter retells in Acts chapter 11. This was an important reminder here because Peter would not have even gone to the Gentiles in the first place unless God went to the lengths that he did to convince him to go. Like sending an angel to Cornelius in his home to send men to Peter. And then God giving Peter the vision when he was on the rooftop and he was all hangry. Well, he wasn't hangry, but he was hungry. Telling him in the vision, rise, Peter, kill and eat is the... Sheets coming down with all the animals, unclean and clean. Telling Peter in that vision to not call common what God had cleansed. This happening three times, meaning that three times Peter told God, no. And then the Holy Spirit, after that vision, telling Peter that three men were seeking him, that he was to go with them, doubting nothing because the Spirit of God had sent them. When we consider that whole account in Acts chapter 10, it becomes clear to us that God chose and used Peter in spite of Peter. 
because God really wanted his gospel to go out to the Gentiles so that they could be saved. It was something that every other Jewish people was reluctant to do because of the distinctions. Because of the racial and ethnic animosity, God was wanting to do away with that. There could never be one church, one body, if it was always us versus them. God had to deal with that strongly, so strongly that God was willing to bring a sheet down from heaven with unclean animals to tell Peter, eat the things. It was was going contrary to everything in Peter as a kosher man who had always eaten kosherly, if that's even a word. Kosherly? Sounds right. I think it's a thing. Just run with it. God wanted his gospel to go out. He, He wanted the Gentiles to be made one in Christ with believing Jews and Samaritans, that there would no longer be any distinctions made, but that all the dividing walls that had kept them apart would be removed. Peter reminds them that God who knows the heart acknowledged those Gentiles That word acknowledged, meaning to testify approvingly. He acknowledged, he testified approvingly by giving them the Holy Spirit. Just as he did to the rest of the believing Jews. And again, that God made no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews that already believed, purifying their hearts by faith. Which made it abundantly clear that the giving of the Spirit and the the purifying of their hearts happen by faith and not by the keeping of the law or being circumcised. The Gentiles weren't purified because they kept the law, but because God purified their hearts when they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting over the years how some believers have approached evangelism almost basically calling people to clean up before they come to the lord they want people to stop their sinful living before they come to jesus i'll reach out to you but you gotta kind of meet me halfway almost is sort of the mentality like cut out the sinning and then we'll talk about how you can be saved from your sin And yet that's not how God works. He doesn't wait us to to have our hearts purified before he then kind of confirms the the cleansing. He goes, look, I want to meet you in your sin and do something in that place of sin. I want to meet you where you're an enemy to the cross of Christ, and I want to make you a friend. I want to make you a part of my family. Paul wrote that, While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Not when we were better. Not when we were more moral. While we were still sinners, when we were in the depth of our sin. It was there that Christ died for us. I like what Henry Ironside, the old pastor and Bible commentator, said about Peter's statement 
that God had purified the Gentiles' hearts by faith, he said, this is what happens when people believe the gospel. It is not merely that they are justified before God, but there is new life. Their hearts are purified by faith. Whereas they once loved sin, they now love holiness. Whereas they once loved impurity, they now love purity. There is a complete change and reversal of attitude when people are born of God. This had taken place in these Gentiles. Who could doubt that God did the work? And you know, each one of us who have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can testify to that purifying work God has done in our hearts. How he has made us new creations in Christ Jesus. All the old things passing away and all things becoming new. We praise him for that truth of what he's done in our hearts. Peter says that the one, uh, Peter says that God is the one who knows the hearts. That phrase literally is that God is the heart knower. He's the heart knower. The one who is the heart knower is also the heart transformer. How many of us today can testify that we are not who we once were and it had nothing to do with us working really hard and becoming better? But that it has everything to do with the sanctifying work and power of the Spirit of God in our lives to change us. To take us from people who were separated from Christ by our sin to people who are being conformed daily into the image of his son. That's our testimony this morning. That is something that you and I, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, should be able to loudly give an amen to. That God, you knew my heart and you still saved me. One of the lines from a worship song that I love the most is, from a Chris Tomlin song where he says, you know the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. I mean, think about the depths of your heart. Think about the jacked up stuff that exists in your heart that no one even knows about. The things that you think about that no one knows. And sometimes it's not even you. Sometimes it's just weird, jacked up things that the enemy's trying to like shoot a fiery dart into your mind and get you started on this weird thing that you're, you would never even thought of yourself. But those things, God knows those things. And yet he still purified our hearts. He made us clean and new. Because he loves us that much. This is what God did with the Gentiles. Cornelius and the rest of the Gentiles who had gathered in his home, they were all uncircumcised. In fact, that was one of the things that they 
had issue with Peter about afterwards. You went into uncircumcised men and you shared a meal with them. Peter, you're jacked up. They had a problem with that. But in their uncircumcised state, Jesus saved them and and purified their hearts because they had put their faith in Jesus. They had believed the simple gospel message that Peter had preached to them. Peter didn't even get to finish up the gospel. And nowhere do we even see in Acts chapter 10 that he got to say, hey, so you know what? If you want to receive Jesus, why don't you stand up? I'll lead you in a prayer. All it says is while he was still speaking, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's the kind of evangelism opportunity that each one of us would love to have. We're just talking to somebody about Jesus and the person just filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in tongues. You're like, what just happened? Wait a second, like, let's step back a little bit. I need to pray for you. What about the sinner's prayer? Do you know that Jesus doesn't need that to work? He just, need, he just wants you to, to talk about his son. The father just wants us to talk about his son, to, to make much of Jesus, to put all the emphasis on Jesus, to, to share the life-transforming gospel of jesus christ that he died and he was buried and rose again and that if we'll put our faith in him we can be saved and you know what the follow-up in that situation in acts 10 wasn't a command for them to then be circumcised and keep the law no what followed their salvation was just a, a simple follow-up of belief it was that they were baptized in water in obedience to what Jesus had instructed in his great commission. That water baptism just being an outward profession of an inward transformation or salvation that had already taken place. Baptized not to be saved, but baptized because they were saved. And they wanted to publicly identify with Jesus Christ. Peter reminded them of these things in the past that God had already done, saving the Gentiles by faith. But now in verse 10, he's going to follow up those reminders with an important question. Look at verse 10 with me. Peter follows that up by saying, Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The question Peter asks is, why are you testing God? You're testing him. Since God had clearly done all those things already with the Gentiles, they were, why, why were they resisting what God had already clearly done? The, the one who knows the heart did not make a mistake by saving these Gentiles the way that he did. But Peter goes on to describe how they were testing God. He asks, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Peter likens their command that the Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to a yoke, which was an instrument they would put on the neck of beasts of burden that would be out in the field why, why are you trying to put a yoke 
on the neck of these Gentiles, which neither their forefathers or these believing Jews they themselves were ever able to bear. This reminded me of what Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia in Galatians chapter 5. Take what Paul said in Galatians 5 verses 1 through 4. And again, the, the letter to the churches of Galatia sprang out of these things that were going on that led to this council. He said in Galatians 5 verses 1 through 4, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. See, see, trying to keep the law of Moses to be justified, to be made righteous in the sight of God, was, was like being entangled with a yoke that Paul said was just bondage. Attempting to be justified by the law of Moses instead of being justified by grace through faith in Christ alone was an indicator that they had actually fallen from grace. Peter reminded these church leaders that attempting to be justified by keeping the law was a yoke on their neck that no one had ever been able to bear. So why were they trying to put this yoke now on these Gentiles who had already had their hearts purified by faith in their God who knows the hearts of mankind? But Peter's mention of a yoke being put on their neck that was too much to bear also reminded me of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, which the apostles would have remembered well. Check out what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus speaking, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, Jesus knew that we would be yoked to something in this life. Something that would dictate to us how we were living, how we would try to find our acceptance in the eyes of God. Those things becoming a yoke upon us that would cause us to be laboring and, and heavy laden, weighed down and in need of rest. And this was definitely true of being under the yoke of the law. But being yoked to Jesus is different because being yoked next to Jesus is where we get to learn from him. It's where we get to see that he is gentle and lowly in heart. It's where we find rest for our souls because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The, the contrast is powerful. Being under the yoke of the law is actually bondage. Because trying to keep the law is not where justification or salvation is found. But being under Jesus' yoke is where true freedom 
and salvation and justification and soul rest is found. All of those things becoming ours when we come to Jesus by faith. Peter is given some important reminders. He's asked an important question, but now in verse 11, he's going to give an important conclusion in his appeal to this council. Verse 11, Peter says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter's important conclusion was really an affirmation of belief. It was a a confident declaration that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, meaning himself and the other believing Jewish church leaders and every believing Jew, would be saved in the same manner as they, speaking of the believing Gentiles. Understand, they all knew throughout Israel's history and also personally that the yoke of the law was something that they couldn't bear. And they all believed that they would be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem was that they weren't applying that same standard to the Gentiles who believed. This was a powerfully convicting statement to the Jewish believers and a powerfully encouraging statement for the Gentile believers. See, whether Jew or Gentile, being saved was never going to come through circumcision or keeping the law, but only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only place of confidence for any of us. But I want us to notice the order that Peter gives there in verse 11, because that order is intentional and radical. He doesn't say, You know what? And and we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, they shall be saved in the same manner we have. But that the salvation of Jewish people will follow the manner of how the Gentiles were being saved. Not by faith in Jesus plus keeping the law of Moses, but only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. In Christ alone. In Peter making this declaration the way he does, he's making it clear that the Gentile salvation was not lesser than the salvation of the Jews who believed. We're going to be saved in the same manner as them. Knowing how strong of a legal mindset was present in some of these believers... This could have been incredibly offensive for Peter to put it that way. They could have rose up again and said, Peter, no, 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 no. Don't say that we're going to be saved like them. We're the the ones. Salvation belongs to us. We're the people of God. They'll be saved like us, not us like them. And yet Peter very purposefully elevates how amazing the Gentiles were saved and says, we're going to be saved like them. We'll be saved like them. Both Jews and Gentiles were in equal need of grace. 
both saved the same way by the grace of Jesus Christ. I like what John Stott said about Peter's testimony to the council in these verses. He said, The central theme of Peter's testimony was not just that Gentiles had heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, received the Spirit, and been purified by faith, but that at each stage, God made no distinction between us and them. And he gives some cross-references there. Four times in Luke's condensed report of Peter's speech, the theme of us, them, or we, they, is repeated. He says, God gave the Spirit to them as to us, verse 8, and made no distinction between us and them, verse 9. So why lay on them a yoke we could not bear, verse 10? We conclude that we are saved by grace as they are, verse 11. He goes on to say, if only the Judaizers could grasp that God makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but saves both by grace through faith, they would make no distinctions either. He ends by saying, grace and faith level us. They make fraternal fellowship possible. I love that statement there at the end, that grace and faith level us. Peter was a man who had radically experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus. He, he spoke about sa- being saved through, gra- through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ from the perspective of being someone who had failed majorly, been in major need of grace but who Jesus had pursued after in his grace and given his grace to and transformed him by his grace. You know, it's so important for us to not forget how we were saved. Not because we were good, not because we were righteous, not because Jesus owed us something, but because he is good and righteous and gracious, and merciful, and forgiving, and loves to save sinners, and that was us. But it's so important for us to not forget that even after being saved by his grace, that we're in constant need of his grace every single day to live out the salvation that we've been given by him. That we will never graduate out of that place of complete dependency on Jesus and his all-sufficient grace. Because when we forget those things, that we were saved by grace, that we are still in constant need of grace, we will begin to fall from grace. We'll stop seeing others through the lens of grace. And we will become graceless, critical people under a heavy, unbearable yoke who only seek to put others under a heavy yoke as well. Peter's appeal to this council was was powerful. It was going to be used powerfully in helping this council make the right decision in the end. And it's still a powerful example and needed word for us today, but we'll continue this account 
next week where we see Paul and Barnabas give their testimony and then James, who is actually the, the half-brother of Jesus, rise up and, and begin to give some insights and a conclusion. But I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing, I'd ask us this morning, you know, what's, what's the Lord speaking to us today? How is he challenging or convicting or maybe correcting us? How is he wanting to encourage and build up and comfort and equip us? Are we standing in the true grace of God? Are we growing in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Today, as Peter wrote towards the end of his, his two letters later in his life, or have we maybe fallen from grace, stopped seeing our own need for Jesus and his grace? You know, maybe today you're finding yourself under a, a heavy yoke of bondage. Maybe you've been laboring and heavy laden and in need of rest. I encourage you in the words of Jesus Come to him, go to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. You will find rest for your soul. Rest for your soul. And I would add to that, as we see how God chose Peter, that out of his mouth, the gospel would go to the Gentiles. I'll remind us today that, look, others are in need of the gospel so that they can believe. Sometimes it's as easy as just a simple invite. I think about some of the things, even over the last handful of weeks, someone inviting someone else who invites someone else. Those people being open and receptive to the gospel and standing to receive the Lord, but it may just be as simple as you opening your mouth on your sidewalk, in your home, with a friend, talking about how Jesus saved you how he purified your hearts, how wonderful his grace is, and how that grace is for them, how that salvation is for them, if they'll just put their faith in Jesus Christ too. Don't discount how powerful a transformed life is. Don't discount the power of the simplicity of the gospel. God wants to use us. And I believe he is using us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, so much here for us to take away. God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would make us a united people in these days. Lord, not a disputing people, not a disgruntled people, but a people, Lord, who even, even when we have a dispute, Lord, we do it lovingly and respectfully. 
Lord, that we give honor and value even to those that we disagree with. And God, would you help us, help us to see, Lord, and to not demand uniformity in areas, Lord, where uniformity is not being demanded by you. But Lord, that we would have charity, Lord, grace in non-essentials, Lord. Diversity in our unity, Lord. God, would you, Lord, remind us this morning of how you saved us. Lord, would you remind us this morning of how badly we still need your grace even after you saved us. Lord, would we be a people who are standing in the true grace of God, who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus daily. Lord, that we would receive your grace and Lord, that we would extend your grace to others. God, thank you. Thank you for how you've saved us. Lord, thank you for how you've changed and transformed us, Lord. God, we desire to see, Lord, your sanctifying work happen to an even greater degree, Lord, that we would not stay as we are, but Lord, that more and more we would look and sound like your son. Lord Jesus, that you would be seen in us. And God, would your gospel be in our mouths, Lord? Would we speak about you to others? Lord, would we see our, our family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? Lord, lead us by your spirit, God. Empower us, Lord. And, and for those this morning, God, who are feeling weighed down, maybe that weighing down is because they've been finding themselves in sort of a, a graceless sort of existence, a graceless sort of relationship with you, Lord, would they, would they cast off, Lord, those things that have become a yoke, that has become bondage in their lives, Lord, and would they come to you, Lord Jesus, and take your yoke once again, find that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Lord, for those that are just feeling weary from life, Lord, trials and tribulations and struggles, Lord. God, those whose souls are, are not at rest this morning, that place of their mind, God, would they come to you, Lord, see that, Jesus, you're calling out to them today to come. Lord, to be yoked to you, Lord, to, to find that you're you're lowly and gentle in heart, Lord. You love them and you want to give them rest, Lord. Would you do that today? Lord Jesus, thank you for your salvation. And Lord, as we consider those who may be present with us this morning, if there's anybody here who doesn't just first have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you've never known what it's like to have your heart purified by faith, to be made a new creation in Christ Jesus where all the old things have passed away and all things have become new. 
I'd love to pray for you this morning. If that's you, would you stand where you're at? If there's anybody here this morning and you're going, look, I want to be forgiven. I want to be made righteous in the sight of God. I want to be made a new creation in Christ. Is there anybody this morning and you're, you're, you're going, look, that's me and I, I want to receive Jesus. Maybe this morning that's somebody joining us online. I would just encourage you to just in your own heart just say, Jesus, I am a sinner. Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you purify my heart? Would you make me a new creation? Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and that you rose from the grave. Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord, be my God. And Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and empower me to live for you in your grace. I just encourage you as you do that this morning, as you put your trust in Jesus Christ and in what he's done, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, as we respond to these things that we've heard this morning, Lord, in songs of praise, Lord, would we continue in this attitude of worship, Lord, would we God, be able to recognize the grace that you've given us, God, and be able to, to turn that into a, a, a shout of praise this morning, God. A life of worship, Lord, that would move forward from our time today into this week, Lord. A life of witness, Lord, that would shine brightly for Jesus Christ in the, the dark world that we live in. God, we need you. We need your grace. And Lord, we're thankful that you have an abundant supply of your grace and the power of your spirit, Lord, to, to help us to live radically for Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.